Gary Indiana is an American playwright, novelist, and critic, most often associated with the downtown scene of Manhattan in the 1970s and 80s. His scabrous novel, Horse Crazy, set during the AIDS crisis in New York, brought him international acclaim. Since then, he has published numerous works of fiction and non-fiction. The reason I'm being vague with the exact number is because I don't really know. Indiana's prodigiousness and eclecticism eschew categorization, or even cataloguing. Fire Season is his latest volume of essays, composed of 39 pieces published between 1984 and 2021, with subjects ranging from the Italian author director Pier Paolo Pasolini to Disneyland. I'm Alexis Self, and on the day that a leaked document suggested the US Supreme Court had voted to repeal the historic legislation known as Roe v. Wade that grants women in the US the right to an abortion, Gary Indiana joined me over the phone from his Lower East Side apartment. I began by asking him how this collection came to fruition. Several of the pieces in the book were in a previous collection called Let It Bleed that came out many years ago. And then the rest of the book are subsequent things that were never collected in a volume. I just chose things partly for what I felt were continued relevance of some of the subjects. And then I wanted to gather some bits of occasional writing and essays that had never been collected in the years since I just chose things according to what I felt, you know, still I had something to say about the current moment. And when you're looking back on something that you've written, is there anything that you have looked back on and feel that you've changed your mind about considerably? Oh, yeah, quite a few things, actually. I didn't change the essays because I don't think it's really legitimate to do that. I think if you were wrong then and thought you were right and you realized you were wrong now... You should just own it. But, you know, I don't know that my thinking has changed that drastically, but there are certainly things, especially with things that have more of a review kind of quality to them. And how much contemporary journalism do you read? Well, I've been trying to not read contemporary journalism as much as I normally do because it upsets me too much. I find the state of the world is really so miserable at the moment. And in the United States today, I mean this day, especially miserable. I, you know, I try to limit the amount of time I spend thinking about what's going on. I didn't used to, but I feel at my great age of 71, almost 72, that I'm not going to change any of this. So <laughs> I'd rather not upset myself with it. You were referring to the news today. I mean, much of your writing is aimed at uncovering or at least describing those characteristics particular to American society. We awoke this morning to news that a reckoning over Roe v. Wade seems imminent, or another reckoning. Why do you think this is still such an issue in American politics? I think that we have a very determined fascist contingent in our government. I think the Supreme Court is a abomination. I mean, imagine Donald Trump appointing three Supreme Court judges. That tells you a great deal about how the court has been completely politicized by the right wing. I think it's a fait accompli. Everything that I was trying to bring attention to when it was still sort of the serpent's egg, you know, is hatched. 
I don't know how things will flesh out in terms of the Roe v. Wade thing. I don't know. And that plus the war in Ukraine, plus the pandemic. I think it's such a gigantic mess that someone more intelligent than I would have to parse it. We seem to be living in an age of, especially in the West, extreme political polarization. Do you think we're living in an age of anger? Well, yes, I do think that there's a lot of angry people. And the trouble with anger, which is, of course, a very negative emotion, is that people strike back at the wrong targets. The point I tried to make in the piece on the Sarnaev brothers, a lot of people in this country are angry for very good reason, but they don't seem to see who the enemies are. You know, it's always somebody weaker. They don't see corporations as their enemies. They don't see these right-wing, you know, demagogues like DeSantis and Trump as really their enemies. They see African-Americans as the enemies. They see Jews as the enemies. They, you know, it's an old paradigm. Do you still think there is an artistic avant-garde in America? Well, no, I don't really. I think that maybe in some very narrow way, I don't know, I think that the art world has become a commodity and the art world has become a money laundry. You know, when you read about Freeports, for example, you know, it's billionaires buying things, putting them in storage until they appreciate and then swapping them like baseball cards. I mean, there's still a great deal of art that gets exhibited that's worthwhile, but the commercial aspect of it or the the commodity aspect of it has sort of overwhelmed the public presence of art in a way. But, you know, this collection, even the title, speaks to the kind of power of criticism as well. Why do you think that cultural criticism is no longer kind of central to American public discourse? Well, I could blame the Marvel Universe. You know, there's just too much to distract people. The culture has been inundated by garbage, really. I don't want to sound too doom and gloomy, but at this moment in time, it, it seems that people who should be out in the street demonstrating are just home watching their screens. Well, I don't know. I have no answers, really. Cultural criticism still, you know, it doesn't have the influence it did because, first of all, people are not habit of reading anymore. They, they don't get their information from long-form journalism or from essays or from Criticism, they get their information from Twitter and social media, which is so reductive and really cretinizing as far as I'm concerned. Everything is based on reaction. Everything is there to stimulate the reactive mind rather than the reflective mind, let's say. Do you think that it's difficult to write about the internet and, and the effect it, it has on us? Well, apparently, I mean, some people have done it. There was a book by Patricia Lockwood, I think, that was mm. pretty good. I don't know how you make a place for it because actually it's it's not real. <laughs> it's not, you know, it, I mean, this, what the internet has done, supposedly, you know, with the, with the great goal of bring us all together is completely balkanized society. I mean, people are, and, and of course this pandemic was great for that too. Just people being isolated, locked up in their little places, their apartments or whatever and not seeing anybody face to face. You know, I, I lived off and on for many years in Cuba without an inter without the internet, and without anything on television except Fidel Castro. And you know, people in Cuba would see each other face to face. That was, that was the normal mode of communication. And we used to have that developed societies as well, but now we don't. It's like texting, for example. 
people texting on their telephones and carry on whole conversations by texting and and why because the the human voice is too intimate they they they're too phobic about actually speaking to somebody else that they have to have whole conversations in text i mean to me it's just more and more alienation and i don't have a cure for it i think people should just go off of these social media things or or at least you know try to limit their use of it to to something reasonable when you were talking earlier, you were saying, you know, the world seems to be a very scary and uh, terrible place at the moment. But is that true? I mean, is it more terrible than it was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s? You know, when there were there were also pandemics, there were also wars, there was also terrorism. Well, I, I don't know if it's worse. It feels worse, but that's because I'm older. I don't feel up to it um, as much. <laughs> I, I thought there were two things that happened in the 60s. And, you know, America was never innocent. But, you know, a feeling of being part of a society certainly changed with the Kennedy assassination. And I think as a corollary, the Kitty Genovese story, you know, Kitty, Kitty Genovese was a young woman in, I think, Queens who was murdered on the street in the middle of the night. And the, the story was that 38 people that lived right directly above where she was murdered did nothing to help her, even though she was screaming, the guy left and came back and attacked her again and killed her. It turned out years and decades later that that was actually not what happened, but that was the way it was reported. And I think the the message was, we're not living in a society where people look out for each other anymore. We're not living in a society where people care about each other anymore. So I did, I think things changed certainly after after that after those two events maybe in my own mind the kennedy genevieve story has been you know bigger than it actually was but i think it was a pretty big deal at the time it, it had an effect on people psychologically if something bad happened to me my neighbors wouldn't come and help me is it worse now i th- i do think it's worse now actually i think it's worse now because you see what's going on in this country i mean you know we have we have raving lunatics in Congress, we have raving lunatics uh, as the governor of Florida. I mean, these people are crazy, you know, and they're bloody minded and they're fascists. I mean, there's, I don't know why people beat around the bush with that term, because that's exactly what these people represent is fascism. DeSantis, Trump, all these people mm. that, that, that creep from Kentucky in the Senate. Well, what about New York City? I mean, some, so often seen as the kind of you know, at least artistically and creatively and, and, and politically a kind of beacon in America for for people. And it certainly was when you moved there in, in the 80s. Um, you know, you still live in the area downtown. You know, you're, you're very much associated with that scene and that milieu. Well, that scene is long gone. I mean, the only reason I'm still I'm still where I live is because I have rent stabilization. I don't have to pay very much for my apartment here. And I live in Los Angeles half the time anyway. How has uh, downtown Manhattan changed? Has it changed in any way for the better? And, and how has it changed for the worse? I, I don't know. I suppose it's cleaner, but it's just full of rich people now. Um, you know, really, you, you know, any young artist or writer or any, anyone in the arts, this is the last place I would advise them to come because you can't afford it. It's very expensive to live here. It was always it was always somewhat expensive to live here, but 
but it's really expensive to live here now. I, I don't know. I mean, culturally, downtown Manhattan is dead. I, I, well, it's not dead, but it, it's it's completely changed. It's not. It's. I don't recognize it as the place that I can. But you know, also, I wouldn't want that again. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want the seventies back. I wouldn't want the eighties back. You know, I just I try to live in the present moment and not. I mean, I I know people who just live for the you know nostalgia of yesterday and you know yesterday doesn't exist anymore well i suppose that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning just one last question do you have hope for humanity i don't really believe in hope people have to you know the the only hope that humanity has is that humanity does something i I mean nothing happens unless people organize nothing happens unless people try for something you know and and generally speaking that would involved in you know trying for something in concert with other people i think that's the only way the only hope that we have i mean you know the 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 big issue that we have now the big problem we have now is this war in ukraine and it's hard to have too much hope when you realize that that the leaders in the west watch this thug in the kremlin come to power 20 years ago they knew he was a mafioso they they you know they watched his cronies loot the whole country and run it like a mafia uh, state and and just treated him like a normal leader rather than, you know, what he is, which is a fascist. I mean, it's very ironic. He accuses uh, the Ukraines of being Nazis. But of course, his stooge Lavrov now says that Hitler, that Hitler was a Jew. Mm. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, you know, I, I, there's always there's always room to hope, but I, I don't think that just plain hope gets you anywhere. I think you know mm. people have they have to get involved with politics. They have to get involved with changing things, really doing it rather than talking about it or or, or hoping about mm. it. Mm. Yeah, my grandmother used to say, "Hopefully, there's hope." Yeah. Well, I would agree with your grandma. <laughs> hope. But, you know, I, I feel I'm so past it. I'm going to be 72 in July. And I feel like, what now could I possibly do that would make the slightest difference? Well, keep writing. Well, hopefully I can continue. continue. I've been stuck for a while. Um, Are you still writing fiction? I, I'm working on a novel that I hope will get finished. Me um, too. I hope to read it's that. About, <laughs> yes. It's, What's it about? Well, it's... Um, so far, it's about people getting old. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a sort of as good as it gets uh, style. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's about other things too. But but just now, what I'm working with is this realization that you know you reach a certain age, and and you know you know there's a wonderful thing in The Crown where they have Princess Alice, and she says that she realized when around the time she turned seventy that she was no longer a participant, but more an observer. But that's perfect as a novelist, isn't it? Well, yes. Thank you, Gary Indiana. Fire Season is out now. This is the Monocle Weekly. This episode was produced and presented by me, Alexis Self, and edited by Adam Heaton with assistance from Callum McLean and Steph Chungu. Thank you for listening.